So last fall, our family uh, got to go to D.C., and we visited several museums around the mall, also the Lincoln Memorial, and then just down from that was the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Uh, This lengthy granite wall hosts more than 58,000 names of Americans who gave their lives in service. As you approach this memorial, though, the atmosphere becomes very different. A brass statue of, of three soldiers stands across from the wall, staring at this sea of names, and the solemn look on the soldiers' faces is unforgettable. A somber seriousness fills the visitors as they look at the names. The memorial sends a clear message. War is dreadful. Never forget those who gave their lives, but also never forget war took them. Likewise, Lamentations stands as a sobering memorial. The face of Lady Zion weeping is unforgettable. To read the book is to sit with her in one of Israel's darkest and most dreadful moments. Important lessons are to be learned here. But to to understand these lessons, we need to understand the book. So for starters, we need to know the background. Where does it fall in Israel's story? Lamentations is a response to the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. If you want a summary of that fall, 2 Kings chapter 25 is your place. Babylon holds Jerusalem under this cruel siege. For three years they starve the people. And then they ransack the city, burn the temple, rob its treasures, kill the people, rape the women... The only survivors get hauled off to captivity or turned into slaves. The city of Jerusalem, the city where God dwelled, the city of Israel's hopes and dreams, that city lies in ruins. The tragedy leads anyone to ask, wait, aren't these God's people? Isn't this God's city? What is God doing? In fact, where's God at? These are God's people. But they are a people with whom God entered a covenant. And that covenant explained the terms of their relationship with God. If the people obeyed the Lord, the land would be their inheritance. They would have rest from their enemies. But if the people rebelled, God would send them unspeakable curses... And drive them from the land. So when we read Lamentations, the suffering is not that of the innocent. Like maybe you would find in Job. In Lamentations, it's deserved suffering. It's deserved suffering beneath the covenant curses And that's crucial to remember when we apply lamentations as those who belong to the new covenant in Christ. There's not always this one-to-one correlation with the types of suffering we may experience. But there's still so much to learn here. 
The way God's people cry when the bottom falls out, when the darkness suffocates every hope, this book will give you words. It doesn't stifle the sufferer. It gives her a voice to lift. It teaches her how to weep in darkness while she waits for mercy. It gives us a language when we feel like God slams the door and bolts it shut in our face. It's real and it's raw. It's not safe for the whole family. The Lord inspired these cries to teach us how to trust Him in the severest pain. That's how one author described a lament. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. But these aren't just any prayers. They're carefully crafted prayers. It's poetry, as you can see by the way it's printed in your, in your Bibles. But what you can't see in the English is that Lamentations contains five poems and the first four are acrostics. Okay, you'll notice there are 22, chapter, uh, 22 verses in chapter 1, and that's because there are 22 characters in the Hebrew alphabet. So each verse begins with the next letter in the alphabet. And this acrostic pattern continues for chapters 2 and 3 and 4. The only difference is that chapter 3 triples the pattern, forming the climactic point where the author recalls God's steadfast love. Why these acrostics, though? Why use the Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet like this? Well, simply put, he's explaining their sorrows from A to Z. Okay, it, it's as if he's saying, here is all the pain in its fullness. In fact, when, when he finally gets to the last poem in, in chapter 5, the acrostic pattern is hardly there and it's shorter. It still has 22 verses, but each verse has fewer lines. It's as if all, uh, all of the pain of the previous chapters have so overwhelmed him that he just can't keep it together anymore. He is spent and all that needs to be said is said and now he must just trust in the Lord and wait The literary structure of the book itself conveys what we often feel when we lament, when we cry to the Lord. That's a bit about the book. Now let's get to its content. If you're a child who likes to draw the sermons, I encourage children to draw the sermon message. So, if that's you... You might today draw a lady who is sitting alone in a dark place, crying. She's very sad, and she's very desperate. I say that because the author personifies the city of Zion as a woman. In the first half of chapter 1, describe her primarily in the third person, so somebody is looking in upon her from the outside... And in the second half, we actually get to hear her cries directly in the first person. So let's read chapter 1, and then I want to return to answer four questions. 
how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces had become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They, they fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. From on high He sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right For I have rebelled against His word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. 
My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've, re- I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it's like death. They heard my groaning, and yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You've brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. So four questions. First, what happened to Zion? Zion is Jerusalem and the Temple Mount where God reigns with His people. Psalm 48 says that she is beautiful in elevation and the joy of all the earth. It's the city of the great King. But a great tragedy has struck. Zion is an abandoned city now. Scripture often speaks of, uh, depicts Zion uh, using the image of a, of a bride. Zion is the Lord's bride. And so it's fitting that Lamentations uses the image of a woman. However, this woman is not celebrating her wedding day. She's in deep distress. And the first word of the book is, is how. Or you might translate it, alas. It's this baffling cry. Someone looks on her in utter dismay. Once she was full of people, she was great, she was, she was a princess, but now she mourns as a widow. She sits alone and exacerbating the loneliness is that she's also enslaved. It reminds us of Israel who was once in Egypt and just as she cried out bitterly then in slavery, so she weeps bitterly in the night here. She's, her cries are inconsolable. The tears are always on her cheeks. And even more, her lovers, they refuse to comfort her. Now, quite often, the prophets use this word, lovers, when describing Israel's adultery. She was to be faithful to the Lord. The Lord was her covenant husband. The Lord had loved her, and the Lord had rescued her, and the Lord had taken care of her. But the people had had affairs with other lovers, Meaning they chased after other gods and they leaned on other governments to save them instead of on the Lord. But these lovers abandoned her. Unlike the Lord, they were not faithful to her. You see, she sits in tears, but these lovers, they walk away. They got what they wanted from her and they leave. And even worse... Her best friends deal treacherously with her. Imagine sitting in your grief and loneliness and you need your friends. You wait for them to come only to discover they all hate you now. Zion is also a cursed city. In verses 4 to 6, we find a great reversal of, of their history. God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and He had 
brought them through the wilderness and he scattered their enemies and he brought them into the promised land securely. But what do we find here in verse 3? It says, Judah has gone into exile under hard servitude. They're back in slavery. And she also finds no resting place, which is the reverse of what she found under Joshua. Her pursuers have all overtaken her. Her enemies are prospering in verse 5. Verse 6 describes her leaders fleeing like a deer before the hunter. And the deer can't find a getaway. Now much of this language appears in the covenant curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. In other words, the covenant curses have fallen on the people. And the situation is so bad that even the roads to Zion are mourning and groaning. Once they were full of travelers coming to worship, coming to celebrate God's goodness at all the festivals. But the curses have turned the city into a ghost town. And so even the roads here are crying out. Zion is also a violated city. A violated city. In grief, memories of good things sometimes bring further hurt. Why is that the case? Because they're not there anymore. You miss them. They're gone. And so also in verse 7, the people are homeless and they have only memories of their precious things. Now verse 10 gives us a little hint on what the precious things might be in part. It says the nations entered her sanctuary. And if you read 2 Kings 25, you can, you can uh, see that all the gold of the temple, all the ornate instruments that were used in worship, all the bronze altars and, and precious stones, Babylon pa- packed it all up and hauled it off. In other contexts, though, like Hosea chapter 9, verse 6, the destruction of Jerusalem also included their precious children. It's the same word. And so it's possible that we're dealing not only with precious items, but with precious people. Her children have been stripped from her arms. And then to heap pain on top of pain, we read this in verse 8. All who honor her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away, her uncleanness was in her skirts. The enemy stretched out his hand over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her holy place. I can't go into much detail because children are present. But essentially, the nations have their way with this woman. And then they bring her out in public to expose her and to mock her And she can't even lift her head. Her shame is too great before everyone's laughter. Zion is also a starving city. Verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. 
They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Verse 19, my priests and elders perished in the city while they sought for food to revive their strength. So in the moment when she needs her leaders most to come to her rescue, they die in the streets from starvation. So she's abandoned, she's cursed, she's violated, she's starving. What does this woman need? She needs a comforter. She needs someone to hold her. She needs someone to cover up her nakedness. She needs someone to protect her from the mockers. She needs someone to strengthen her. But no one comes. Five times we're told that she has no comforter. Verse 2, she has none to comfort her. Verse 9, she has no comforter. Verse 16, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. Verse 17, there's none to comfort her. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there's no one to comfort me. Suffering is at least bearable when you have a comforter to help you through it. Zion, though, is a city without a comforter. Which makes the suffering all the worse. So who did this? That's our second question. Who did this to Zion? Who put her in this state? Now, at one level, we can say Babylon did. The nations did. Verse 5 says, Her foes have become her head. Her enemies prosper. Verse 10 says, The nations entered her sanctuary. But that isn't the full picture. Notice verse 5. The Lord has afflicted her. The Lord. When she cries to the Lord in verses 12 to 15, notice the major actor behind the verbs. Verse 12. Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. And then verse 13 tells more. From on high, He, that is the Lord, sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. Basically, using Babylon, God burned the city to the ground. Even worse, the pain, it says, entered her bones. So the force of God's displeasure makes her internally miserable in addition to what's burning outside. And she goes on, He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint, all the day long. So Babylon would actually use nets to capture people as they fled the city. The point here, though, is that the Lord is the ultimate trapper. Babylon is just His instrument. The Lord, it says, even pushes them backwards into the trap while they're fleeing. And try as they may, they cannot escape. 
And then verse 14, my transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. And just to clarify, the point here isn't that God is absent from the city and it just so happens that the mighty men fall. No, the point is that the Lord is the one in the city. He is actually present in my midst and He's defeating them. So His presence, the very presence that once protected the city from their enemies, now is in the city as a terror. And then it goes on. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. The the image here is one of the most gruesome in Scripture. It's another way of saying that the sword of judgment has fallen and the blood is running through the streets. Much like the grapes would excrete their juice when trampled underfoot. The image is one where the Lord crushes the people. Now why? That's that's question three. Why did the Lord cause such a tragedy here? And the answer is to glorify His righteousness in judging sinners. To glorify His righteousness in judging sinners. Look again at verse 5. Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And then verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Verse 20. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. Lamentations is is not the people raising their fist to say at God, we don't deserve this. No, they know they deserve it. Lamentations teaches the people to confess their sin and to hate the sin that brings God's judgment. And then to trust in His righteous character. And verse 18 makes that type of attitude even clearer. Look at what he says. It says, the Lord, this is verse 18, the Lord is in the right. Or better, righteous is the Lord. For I have rebelled against His word. What a remarkable confession in the midst of her sorrow. Righteous is the Lord, for I have rebelled against His Word. You see, God explained what would happen to them if they rebelled against His Word. Judgment, curse, abandonment, no rest, no peace. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them that this is going to fall on you. 
And if God just stood by and pretended that their sin wasn't a big deal, then his righteousness would be called into question. But that's not an option on the table because God is righteous and he must punish covenant breakers. And these were the terms of the covenant. He must remain faithful to His character and faithful to His covenant word. And that's why Zion fell. To glorify God's righteousness in judging sin. So last question. What does this mean for God's people? You know, as we look on this memorial, as we see the tears on Zion's face, and look at her circumstances, how should we respond? C.S. Lewis once wrote, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but He shouts in our pain. It's His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When we look on Zion's pain... What message do we find God shouting? Part of the message is repent and renew your hatred for sin and its horrific consequences. Repent and renew your hatred for sin and its horrific consequences. Twice, Lady Zion calls the nations to look and see. Verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, she's talking about Babylon, right outside the side of the city, walking by, seeing what ruin she is. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which the Lord inflicted. Verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my Suffering. Why? Why should the nations see? Why should they look and see? Because God wanted them to see that awful punishments fall on covenant breakers. And if they listened carefully, they'd find themselves included in that group of rebels. Look at verse 21. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They're glad you have done it. You've brought the day you have announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my transgressions. You see, exile was not only judgment on Israel... It taught the nations a lesson. God judges covenant breakers. And on this side of Adam, that's everybody. They should have looked at that example, repented from their sins, and put their trust in Yahweh. But according to Isaiah, that's not what the nations did. They grew arrogant. They mocked them. They reveled in in Israel's shame. They did not take her downfall to heart. We cannot follow them. 
We must look here at Zion's pain with more sensitive eyes. Do you see the awful consequences of sin when you look on Lady Zion? Do you see what happens when you turn to other lovers besides the Lord? Do you see how they leave you miserable in in your shame? Do you see how they weigh you down like a heavy yoke? Do you see that your hope cannot rest in other gods and in other governments, including this one? Check the history. They've got a track record for ruining people. The Lord alone and His Word is our hope. Lamentations teaches us to weep over sin. Lament is how godly sorrow talks. Find a Christian that hates their sin and loves God's righteousness and their prayers will sound a lot like this book. What does James say? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Lamentations wakens us to the heinousness of sin. Look how it invites destruction on the people. And then bring that sin before the righteous judge. Which leads to another response. Isn't it amazing in this book? And she knows God has brought the judgment upon her. And she doesn't run to anybody else. She runs to Him. So bring your laments to the Lord who meets us in the darkest moments. Bring your laments to the Lord who meets us in the darkest moments. Lamentations exist to supply the faithful with prayers while they wait for God's mercy in the darkest circumstances. Take a step back and consider God inspired these laments. He inspired the cry in verse 9. O Lord, behold my affliction. Or verse 11. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Or verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. Why would God inspire prayers like that and then preserve them for us in Scripture? Partly to give us a language to speak when darkness falls. Even if that darkness falls as a result of our sin. God desires that we cry to Him like this right here. You might be alone. You might feel abandoned. You might weep bitterly in the night. You might be sitting in your shame. Sin has absolutely wrecked you. But you can cry Look, O Lord, look, I'm in distress. Save me. You might hate that God's enemies prosper. You might see the culture growing darker and darker. You may see destructive heresies entering and harming the church. But you can protest. Look, O Lord, let all their evil doing come before you. 
Lament is how we speak to the Lord when dark clouds suffocate hope and when comfort is far away. It helps us remember that God meets us in our sorrow, in our pain. Even more, He sent His Son into our pain. He became the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He cried to His Father in the garden. He lamented from the cross while enduring a punishment infinitely greater than anything Zion ever knew. And He did it all for us to take our place beneath the wrath of God. There is not a greater lament than the one Jesus cried. Our God meets us in the darkness. So bring Him your lament. And then when you do, let me reassure you of His comfort in Christ. Strikingly, the Lord remains silent in lamentations. Zion cries for Him to look and see, but an answer does not come. She needs comfort, but no comforter comes. The book reads like we often feel when we lament. Where are you, Lord? Don't you see me? Would you look on my state? And then, silence. No answer. But that doesn't mean God's answer never came. Eventually, God sent a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah's prophecy extended beyond the exile. And in Isaiah 41, we find these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Can you imagine how good those words sounded to somebody sitting with Zion? Some of them never got to hear those words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A new exodus, a greater saving work was coming. And then six more prophecies unfold in Isaiah, each using the same word, comfort. Isaiah 49, would, God would have compassion on the afflicted. He'd again fill the lonely city with a redeemed people from all nations. In Isaiah 51, He'd make Zion's wilderness like Eden, like the garden of the Lord itself. Joy and gladness, it says, would be found in her. In Isaiah 52, all the ends of the earth would see God's salvation. In Isaiah 54, a new Zion would come, and all who belong to that city, they would be taught of God. In Isaiah 61, the comfort is the year of the Lord's favor. He would comfort those who mourn, and He would give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. He would give them singing instead of mourning. And then finally, in Isaiah 66, the Lord comforts Jerusalem, it says, as a mother comforts her child. In other words, Isaiah's promises of comfort are the answers to the cry for comfort in Lamentations. They didn't deserve it. But in God's mercy, He gives it. Even better, we know their fulfillment in Christ. You see, comfort is impossible when sitting in shame. 
But Christ comes to remove our shame and to clothe us with splendor. Comfort is impossible when we bear that heavy yoke of sin. But Christ comes to remove that yoke from our necks. He breaks the power of sin. Comfort is impossible when God is your enemy. But in Christ, God has loved us even while we were still His enemies. Even better, it says we, have, we now have peace through the blood of His cross. Peace with God. Comfort is impossible when your enemies prosper, but Christ will destroy all our enemies when He comes again. Comfort is impossible when there are tears on your cheeks, but in Christ's kingdom, it says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no mourning nor crying anymore. So we have good news in Christ and we have seen the fulfillment of Isaiah's words of comfort. Comfort. Isaiah's days of comfort have dawned for the people of God. They're not complete, but they have dawned. And so we find the church in Acts, guess what? Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Or this one from 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may He comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Or 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's not just the God of some comfort. He's the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you get that? Until the kingdom of God comes in full, God's comfort doesn't mean we won't suffer, but it doesn't mean we have to sit alone like Zion in affliction without a comforter. God is our comforter. That's amazing. Because of Christ's work, our greatest suffering is behind us. There's no wrath left for you. Which means that no matter what we face, God is with us to comfort us and give us all we need to endure the sufferings of this present evil age. And you know what? He also saved each of you to bring His comforts to one another. And that's what Paul said, so that we may be able to comfort those who were in any affliction. In Christ, God not only becomes our chief comforter, but He also gives us to one another to share His comforts together. Your shoulders are for each other to cry on. Your ears are for each other to listen to your cries. Your eyes are to look on those in distress and to weep in darkness together while waiting for mercy. Your mouths are to give each other words in grief like this one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we turn to the Lord's Supper this morning, as you eat the bread together and drink the cup, 
remember that just like Lady Zion, we too sat alone in sin without a comforter. But now in Christ, we have the God of all comfort. Let's eat and drink to that. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.